0: The Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions.
1: Lunar Science.
2: The uh, surface is fine and powdery, I can pick it up loosely with my toe, it does adhere in fine layers like powdered charcoal to the sole and sides of my boots, but I can see footprint of my boots and the tread in the fine anti particles.
1: Welcome to Lunar Science. The series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. In episode 20 we ask what is the value of a foothold on the moon, what are the plans for an Artemis base camp, how lunar lava tubes could be used and how Artemis can be a step toward Mars. And what does it all mean for human destiny? Samuel Lawrence wears at least two caps. Not only is he a planetary scientist at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, he is the chair of NASA's Lunar Exploration Analysis Group. In May of 2020, he had these thoughts on the value of a human foothold on the moon.
0: My job here today is to talk a little bit about uh, something that you have only heard hinted about earlier, but... Um, you know, kind of the value of a foothold on the Moon, the Phase 2 of the Artemis program. So Phase 1 is everything up to and including the Artemis 3 mission. Phase 2 is everything that comes after. So I think this is a really important thing to remember, and I don't think it really comes across a lot of the time um, in many of the presentations that we give, is that the Moon is a stunning world full of wonder and opportunity, and it's just waiting for us. It's only a few days away. The Moon is not boring. It's not a detour. Not a distraction. It's a world in its own right, and it is amazing with vistas that no human being has ever seen before. It is a world waiting for us to explore it, but it is still waiting because the Apollo program was unsustainable. It's been 50 years since Apollo 11 landed on the moon. This is shameful, and but it really does stray from the point that, however you define sustainability, and sustainability can be defined in many different ways. Apollo wasn't it. It was canceled, it ended. Um, It was amazingly successful, it was a paradigm that worked well 50 years ago, but it was canceled. And I think it's incumbent upon us, and I think everybody involved now recognizes that we need to do things a little bit differently this time. We have, as a community, I have noticed a natural tendency to try to go, you know what, this is what worked 50 years ago, let's just do that again. Or, you know, let's just do a bunch of sortie missions. Apollo visited took everything with it, it did a bunch of camping trips, it was bushwhacking in a wilderness. And if you have to bring everything with you every time, the program is by definition not gonna be sustainable. So there's going to be some, uh, some talks following mine about uh, by Dr. Amy Fagan, the League Operations Chair, highlighting the Lunar Exploration Roadmap, which which really emphasizes the value of steady incremental progress to enable the use of local resources, And also achieve science objectives and another talk by my illustrious predecessor, Dr. Clive Neal, describing the diverse array of uh, desired capabilities that have been expressed by the community in terms of what we want to do on the lunar surface. So we have a a consistent story. Nothing I'm about to say is new. Nothing is as terribly innovative when some of the first Artemis, uh, you know, March 27th, the day after Artemis, people are like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I literally took the copy of the Sputus and Taylor 1990 report I have in my desk and started using the words from that. We have a consistent story over five decades amplified by results from the 21st century lunar missions that conclusively demonstrate the value of the moon. That paragraph, I'm not going to read any of these, but that paragraph from the ride report could be used today. We haven't been back to the moon in fifty years, but we have an abundant amount of policy information, of reports, of architectures, of studies, of trade space analyses, you name it, we've done it, that really demonstrate, you know, the value of a sustained presence on the surface of the moon. It's been a consistent story, and in fact the story when the story does not include the moon is the aberration, not, not the other way around. Which brings us to Space Policy Directive 1 in 2017, uh, which was signed, which directs that the United States will lead a return of humans to the moon for long-term exploration and utilization. And I think I would uh, say that this should, you shouldn't read too much into this. It is what it sounds like. Go back to the lunar surface, use the resources that you find there to do useful things. And this was subsequently clarified by the findings of the fifth meeting of the National Space Council to encompass not only the return to the moon by 2024, by any means necessary, but also the establishment of a field station on the moon by 2028. And the field station concept is really important. The moon is the true gateway to the solar system. It is our foothold in the solar system from which we can go anywhere. It's close enough to be achievable. It's difficult enough that we can develop needed capabilities by enabling routine access and a true cis-lunar economy. This is where we become a spacefaring species and realize our spacefaring aspirations using steady incremental progress in a place that's only a few days away. If we want to avoid another premature ending like Apollo, we need to establish a genuine foothold on the surface, by which we mean a stationary habitat. We need to provide diverse multi-stakeholder value for commercial, scientific, and strategic purposes, and one that will expand and evolve over time. This is another point I think just isn't, we're not really making this enough. The Artemis Base Camp, will be humanity's first field station on another world. When those first astronauts get to the base camp to set up shop, it will be every bit as meaningful and every bit as important to the history of the human species, to our progress, to the preservation of our freedom, to our legacy for our posterity, as the Apollo 11 was. Our first foothold on another world. That is a non-trivial accomplishment. No matter how dark and how messy the sky is, no matter how much light pollution there is, you can always see the moon, and having an American presence on the surface of the moon will send a powerful message to our friends and to our enemies alike about what the United States can achieve in peace for everyone. A foothold enables science and so much more. Now, this, any, any analogy... Will break down, but I think this is not a bad one. The United States conducts a significant amount of scientific exploration in Antarctica. Scientists go through McMurdo Station where the logistics and reusable transportation and infrastructure enables them to reach nearly anywhere in the continent. This science only occurs because of the existence of key infrastructure, most notably McMurdo and the South Pole Station. The Artemis base camp will provide the same benefits to the United States and its allies at the moon. Decadal science can be achieved in the region around the pole accessible by unpressurized, like the LTV you've just heard about, and pressurized rovers. Other fundamental science questions will require the ability to do regional-scale fieldwork provided by the pressurized rovers, and eventually you can realize the goal of global access facilitated by resource production and hoppers enabled by ISRU at the Artemis Base Camp. So in this sense, the Artemis base Camp will not only enable science, but it will also enable a true cis-lunar economy. So during Constellation, we sort of got bogged down a bit and do we do a bunch of sortie missions or do we start building the outposts? And you can make arguments either way, but you know, if you do go to the same spot over and over again, it's not boring. You know, it's, we don't stop going to Antarctica every year because we, you know, went there one year. We keep going back and that's because it's interesting. Repeat visits to the same spot on the lunar surface in a 21st century McMurdo model as we develop capabilities through steady incremental progress will have significant benefits. You can test and follow up on field work enabled by the infrastructure. You can use the tools and equipment that remain on the surface and are safely stored there from previous missions. There won't be any more camping trips. You're going to a campground. You're not going to be bushwhacking. You're going to have a relatively developed area and you can build and develop the site. Repeat human visits will enable the careful collection and return of new geologic samples that will potentially revolutionize our understanding of how terrestrial planetary bodies undergo in their initial evolution, will develop new in-situ analysis capabilities, will return new lunar highland samples from a terrain geologically and geochemically distinct than those explored during Apollo and can test hypotheses we have on previous missions on subsequent missions. These samples will provide important new information for planetary science. The Apollo missions, just three days on the lunar surface, revolutionized our understanding of the solar system and the universe around us. Just imagine what will happen when we're on the moon for months, and the Vice President has even talked about years at a time. The emplacement and maintenance of surface experiments and equipment will also be dramatically enhanced by regular repeat access by humans and robots to the same location over and over again. We can upgrade seismic arrays. We can change out experiments if they fail, and we can upgrade experiments with new capabilities for Earth observations and other things. There's also a strategic component of this, too, with some of the discussion around the Artemis Accords. The Moon is outside of the Earth's deep gravity well. Properly leveraging lunar resources should enable a commanding presence throughout lunar space. The polar location, which was specified by the Space Council, is enabling because of the existence of the locations of near-permanent sunlight. It is the illumination that's the resource. We heard a lot about the polar volatile story and to be sure it's a good one, but it's the illumination that is the resource we are actually going after with the Artemis missions. But a sustained exploration should also enable science. So I wanna just caution everybody, especially in the science community, that while our work is important, that other uses of the lunar surface for resource, um, for resource production and utilization are every bit as legitimate as scientific Uh, uses of the lunar poles. We don't want to really exclude anything and we obviously want to try to find mutually beneficial arrangements for everybody but the notion of using lunar resources is every bit as legitimate and every bit as useful and every bit as desirable as studying those for scientifically and they should not be mutually exclusive. The extraction of polar resources will enable not only a cislunar economy it also will dramatically facilitate the study of polar volatile samples, which could provide details not only on the origin and evolution of these deposits, potentially the earliest parts of the Earth Moon system, or excuse me, earliest times of the Earth Moon system, and potentially the building blocks of life. And this is an important point because human exploration of the solar system will always be constrained if we always have to bring everything from Earth that we need for the return journey every single time. The Moon has abundant resources where we can learn how to live off the land and enable voyages to other destinations. And the Moon also has non-polar resources too and we haven't forgotten about those, but if we can build out at the field station, learn how to do lunar oxygen production, that will enable us to do it other places on the lunar surface as well. Fifty years from now, humans will be using the Moon. Someone will be making a profit. And we want very much for those summons to include American companies, among others. A thriving Cislunar economy is a key for making this program truly sustainable, and by that I mean self sustaining and with the ability and resiliency to survive changing political fortunes. How do we go from this wilderness to an actual foothold? Well, the characteristics of the notional Artemis Base Camp are provided in the sustainability plan that was just released. Uh, I included a hyperlink down there, but you can find it pretty easily enough doing internet searching. This means that right around the 2028-ish time frame, you'll have a crew of up to four doing one to two Earth-month rotations on the lunar surface, using a combination of the lunar terrain vehicle, the unpressurized rover, and the habitable mobility platform to do geology, but also uh, this foundational habitat, a stationary, fixed. Uh, location on lunar surface from which to conduct experiments and science and to really pave the way towards other destinations. Now, no one is talking. I showed that little picture. You saw my previous reports up there where you have that, that beautiful Pat Rawlings painting that was done for the Windell Mindell lunar bases in the 21st century volume. It's going to take a while to get to that point. So instead of thinking of this as, you know, like uh, Space 1999 or Clavius Base, we're really just talking about, a space lab on the lunar surface, something very similar to that, a small habitat and the ability to access it, but that's important. The stationary foundational habitat, there are classes of experiments that don't lend themselves well to bouncing around in the back of a pressurized rover and those experiments are every bit as important as the geology and field science we aim to accomplish. Also, if you um, look at some of the schemes that have been proposed for Mars in the past, like the Design Reference Mission 5.0 from 2009, There is this concept of the Mars Field Station and everything, most of the things you do on the Moon will be directly transferable, and not only in terms of engineering experience but workforce experience through developing uh, the systems you're going to need to actually do sustained habitation on the surface of Mars for hundreds of days at a time. This has pretty important implications for what the science we're going to do for the Artemis program. If you're really going to be going to the same spot or something close to it, you know, several times for most of the 2020s, that will change how we do things and that will change our sampling strategies to some extent, change our philosophies for how we do EVAs and timeline adjustments. And we should also think about the desired capabilities of the foundational habitat. Uh, You know, how much in situ analysis for geo samples are we going to need on the foundational habitat? I would suggest the answer is probably some, we probably ought to think about that. What are the implications for multi-stakeholder utilization? You know, the foundational HAB is just the anchor, but it should be surrounded by other contributions from international partners, commercial entities. You know, you really are trying to set up a sustainable framework for international participation here. So these are all topics to discuss as we move forward. But another key thing, though, to remember for everyone is that it's up to us. We have a clear sense, I think, this community of the value of a sustained surface presence. That isn't really shared by everyone. It's up to us to clearly articulate it and make sure it's understood that there are stakeholders who really do want to see this capability established. This is it. If things go the way we hope they do, this is the spot where we turn deep space, from a wilderness destination, visited only briefly and tentatively, to a frontier of human achievement, the Artemis base camp is the fulcrum for all of our future activities in space. More geology, more field science, more opportunities for commerce, more inclusion of the moon in the Cislunar economy, more American jobs, more samples, more capable rovers, more exploration. There are some near-term needs that you've probably also heard hinted about earlier. We need a global communications and navigation network. To enable us to not only navigate safely to the polar regions but other destinations we may want with uncrewed assets. We want to, uh, obviously, I think the unpressurized crew rover, uh, referred to as the LTV, is critically important. Have that as soon as possible on the, you know, on the first mission uh, if, if, if that's still in the trade space. Uh, Viper is a fantastic start, but we need to think about what other prospecting and resource assessment missions could fly after Viper. We'll be able to survive the lunar night. We need power systems to enable uh, surface experiments to operate uh, after they're in place and also to enable the foundational habitat. And we need automated sample return capabilities to augment, you know, the uh, sample return capabilities of the Artemis system, you know, uh, uh, analyses have shown, you know, for every hour you spend on the surface, you're going to pull back multiple kilograms of samples, and if you're on the moon for two or three months at a time, you're going to collect a lot of samples. So how do you hydrate the samples? And how do you, you know, can you catch them at the field station and then use automated systems to get them back? All of these are things we as a community need to discuss.
1: The thoughts of Samuel Lawrence. The first Artemis landings on the Moon will set astronauts on the surface for a week or so. Eventually, longer stays will be made. For that... A base camp will be required. James Bleacher is chief exploration scientist at NASA headquarters. In May of 2022, he described plans for Artemis base camp science. So
3: the base camp is a concept that would be a little bit farther down the road as we start to have multiple assets in place that we use over and over. So multiple year surviving assets. There are concepts in place. The first Artemis landing, Artemis 3, will be somewhat limited. So our astronauts will be walking around the lander, um, conducting research in the nearby terrain, bringing samples back from a place we've never been to before. Uh, But after that, the plans are to have an increased mobility capability, the lunar terrain vehicle, that would have the ability, depending on what we get back from our um, community that, that ends up winning the bid, an ability to move away from a A single central location maybe drive to future landing spots so we can start to extend the presence that we have we can go to different locations or drive away a little bit farther than we were at the beginning now there are additional concepts i mentioned that are in pre-formulation so eventually we want to get to the point of having habitable volumes on the surface of the moon now they may be stationary they may be mobile uh, but that puts our astronauts in a position where instead of staying in a spacesuit while they do all of the work on the surface and returning to that lander, uh, they actually have that environment that they can go survive on on the surface. Um, So you kind of have to think about what we actually have in development, the RFPs that have gone out, and then you know extend your vision a little bit about what we might put on the surface. And some of that will depend on how our objectives evolve and what we're learning about the lunar surface, where do we want to go What is it that we want to do there? Do we want to be more mobile? Do we want to be anchored in um, a single location doing very detailed studies, some combination of both? Uh, But the base camp is basically a, a concept where we consolidate multiple assets that are going to survive over multiple years so that we can start to reuse the things that are there.
1: Our human ancestors often sought refuge in caves from the weather. Predators and enemies Perhaps lunar settlers could use lava tubes for protection from solar and cosmic radiation.
4: Hello and a virtual welcome. My name is Peter Andrew Johnson and today I'll be presenting on the in-situ applications of lunar lava tubes and their potential for use as emergency shelters for human habitations and a number of other in-situ applications on the moon. Before I get started, I have no conflicts of interest to declare. Now, lunar lava tubes are formed by basaltic lava flows following eruptions after volcanic events. The lava flow surface cools and then hardens to form tube-shaped passages, which, are follow- which create hollow wets, which can be used for habitation and for a number of other purposes. Now, there are three main issues that astronauts face while on the moon's surface. One, falling meteor- micrometeorites. Two, exposure to extreme temperatures. And three, fatal levels of radiation. While in space, there is no atmospheric cover that would protect a spacecraft or a spacewalker in the case of falling micrometeorites. Now, secondly, exposure to extreme temperatures must also be taken into account. Because on the moon, the typical average daytime temperature is approximately 107 degrees Celsius, and the nighttime average temperature is minus 153 degrees Celsius, respectively. Now, exposure to such extreme temperatures can cause a number of different kinds of harms to the human body, where lava tubes, on the other hand, are able to provide an insulated and stable temperature of approximately minus 20 degrees Celsius. Now, lunar lava tubes also have are tunnels which are approximately 300 meters in diameter and greater than 40 meters in depth, and they can provide a protective layer of basalt and regolith, which allows for physical support in terms of the structure itself, but also support from environmental hazards such as radiation, um, micrometeorites, and ejecta. Another key application of lunar lava tubes are, is its use for emergency storage purposes. So we can store equipment such as, um, such as robots or uh, probes that we're using on missions, or even more critically, we can store food, so foods and also medical supplies, which are critical for various emergency situations. Now, lava tubes as a whole, as a storage space, it is very suitable because it allows for stable conditions in the environment, and it allows for regulated temperatures as well. In addition to thermal stability, there are also other functional considerations that lunar lava tubes can allow, and as a result, they have a lot of utility in terms of its use on the surface of the moon. However, it is critical to realize that there are dangers. In, in particular, unstable lava tubes can be prone to gravitational collapse, which is why gravimetric assessments must be performed prior to inhabiting lunar lava tubes. Currently, we have a number of methods that are that have been u- utilized and preliminary data, which suggests that certain lava tubes are stable, whereas others are not stable. Uh, there are some other dangers, including meteorites, which can which can ultimately result in damage to uh, stable lunar lava tubes, seismic events and volcanic events, both of which are much more rare, but in the end still can affect lava- lunar lava tubes and human habitation. There are also a number of other in-situ colonization applications of lunar lava tubes. As lunar lava tubes are found between boundaries of lunar maria hills and highlands, uh, there are critical applications that they could be used for in the context of these geographical pinpoints. In particular, the lunar mares or basaltic plains allow for an effective landing site for lunar missions as well as for regolith harvesting. They can also be useful when we consider applications such as underground mineral mining, which is a, which is an application that has gained much interest over the recent decade and is something that will continue to gain interest as we move forward. Another aspect of in situ colonization that we need to consider is that most of these lunar lava tubes are found in the highlands borders where there are elevated regions. This could be very important and appropriate for communications applications. There's also considerations such as the ease of mapping applications, as well as radar and remote sensing technologies, all of which could benefit from being uh, applied from a higher elevation, higher elevated regions. Now, a number of proposed explorations have been uh, have been put forward by a number of different organizations, especially the European Space Agency and uh, NASA. In particular, the Moon Diver Mission, which has been proposed by the JPL, uh, is a concept where a terrain rover is uh, put, put on the surface of the Moon and utilized to explore lunar lava tubes and t- for us to perform these gravitometric assessments and gain better as- understandings of the stability of these surfaces. There's also been proposed dataless Sphere by the ESA, the th- which allows for 3D mapping of these lunar lava tubes using the serodoscopics cameras as well as LIDAR technology, both of which uh, has an immense promise for exploring the surface of these lunar lava tubes and it- assessing its u- u- usability for human-derived purposes. Another key technology that has been identified by the ESA has been the Robocrate, which is a six degrees of freedom robotic explorer, which can allow for 3D imaging again of the surface of lunar lava tubes and allow for better characterization of these surfaces.
1: Many people see the Artemis project as a stepping stone towards human settlement on Mars. In May of 2022, Laurie Abadie of NASA's Human Research Program described the proposed steps to Mars and gave warning of five hazards to be overcome.
5: So the Human Research Program is looking to build on the existing research that we're currently doing on the Earth and in ISS and uh, apply it to what we plan to do on Artemis in the lunar orbit or lunar uh, vicinity in order to answer those questions that the Office of Chief Health and Medical Officer has posed as risks for human spaceflight in order to enable our Mars missions. So, again, we're building on the base that we have here on Earth with some of our analogs. Uh, adding to what we're doing in ISS that provides us that ability to evaluate microgravity as well as some of the uh, special environmental hazards that are associated with low Earth orbit. And then we're adding to that with what we'll be able to investigate in in, uh, the lunar vicinity in order to answer some of those questions. Specifically on Artemis, what we're looking for in terms of uh, the impacts to the five hazards that have been uh, identified for human research are the ability that uh, the Artemis missions will give us to evaluate that deep space radiation that we can't get in low Earth orbit, as well as the impact of altered gravity uh, over those G transitions that we currently don't get when we do our a lot of our ISS research. Uh, we're hoping to take some of these answers and be able to answer those questions associated with things like uh, what are the impacts for the long duration missions as they go to Mars for the 6 to 8 to 12 month uh, duration to get there? What will the crew members be able to do? What are the additional impacts to their system? Um, that that would impact their ability to perform activities? And then what, if any, benefit or detriment do those G-transitions elicit that would uh, impact some of the countermeasures or operational controls that we're looking to develop in order to enable the crew to come back safe and happy? Uh, So again, what is our mission philosophy for Artemis specifically? We're looking to be as unobtrusive and non-invasive as possible. We understand that the limitations of the resources associated with Artemis for not just operations, uh, for not just utilization, but all operational impacts Will be very important for us to be able to minimize what we are trying to do in terms of resource use and uh, crew time impact. So, we're trying to do this as unobtrusively and non invasively as possible. Um, we're also looking to do kind of an in depth characterization of the individual. So, we're taking the data that we're collecting from the crew, we're adding to it to as much metadata that we can collect from the vehicle or from the other programs as they collect data um, and add it to our research, as well as evaluating the training and the admission resources that are required to do these operations since this Artemis mission analog will be a, a very good look at what it will take in order for us to be successful in a much more crew or sorry, much more Earth independent mission like we'll have in the Mars mission. And again, looking to apply that research approach as a continuum across all of the programs and missions to enable this moon to Mars. So we're looking to start with Artemis II and I'll talk about that here in a second, uh, build and add to our capabilities, add to our, our operations, and make it so that by the end or by uh, we get through the uh, later Artemis missions, we can use that as more of a model for an analog for a true Mars mission to evaluate and do a shakedown of what we are planning to do or what we're recommending in terms of countermeasures and controls. Just a very quick snapshot of our current plans for the first few Artemis missions, for our first Orion-only mission. We are planning a very uh, small set of uh, in-flight payloads. We do plan to do a number of pre- and post-flight collections to augment this data set but we do have three approved for the first Orion-only mission. As we go to the first surface mission, we're looking to expand our capabilities and evaluate what we can uh, perform or what data we can collect uh, once uh, we get that first return to the moon. Uh, With Gateway, we're actually incorporating a number of international partner studies as well as HRP. So we are a part of a uh, what's called the Gateway Tiger Team for the Human Health and Discipline Working Group. And through that group, we've identified a number of not just NASA, but international partner payloads that we're looking to perform on Gateway. So we're helping to manage that list. And then as we go to the standard Artemis or what we could call sustaining, where we'll have the full architecture in place, we look to expand our capabilities and expand the number of uh, studies and payloads that we're looking to operate across the Artemis platform. So from Orion all the way to Gateway, HLS and onto the surface. Um, We're looking at that time course adaptation, so that's why we need these longer duration missions in order to understand how things change. There's a lot of unknowns once you get past six months to a year, so we're looking to evaluate that. Uh, Everything is crew consent based, so again, we'll have to ensure that uh, we are doing this ethically moving forward. So that's another uh, piece we'll have to look at. And then international partners uh, will be collaborating with them, Gateway, and if they ended up on the rest of the Artemis mission, we'll work that as well. And of course, uh, time to collect and crunch the data. As we get these answers from the Artemis missions, how that impacts the Mars architecture is something we'll have to work with those programs to make sure we have the time to give them the answers they need.
1: David Draper is NASA's Deputy Chief Scientist. He sees Artemis as both a challenge and an opportunity for humanity.
2: Um, I really want to return to the theme that has come out many times today, namely that that we have these big challenges to rise to. We've got to do amazing things in not amount of time, not a lot of amount of time, great problems to have. But uh, we have before us the greatest opportunity of our lifetimes, as I think we've all recognized but it's, it's, it's even bigger. It's, it's to change the destiny of humanity. And I know how grandiose that sounds, even for me. Um, but I really believe it to be true. Um, in many ways, we are standing today on the doorstep to a new reality and uh, the returning of launching of American astronauts from U.S. soil on U.S. spacecraft, which is, is the harbinger of this. Um, now, when we say, we are going back to the moon the we is is really everyone NASA of course international partner agencies and we've heard so much about that today an increasingly vibrant uh, commercial space sector academia citizen scientists all the rest Uh, space exploration in general uh, and NASA in particular have always been these agents of unification uh, both when things have gone according to plan and and when things have not In addition uh, to the people attending this workshop who are, you know, we're in the business, um, but we need all of you here today, but we need everyone else, too. Not just the engineers and the scientists, the technologists, the astronauts, but we need the accountants and the HR professionals and the architects and the farmers and the road builders and the plumbers. We need everybody. Um, So the message that, that must go out is no matter what your road is in life, there's a stretch where your road and our road is the same road. And this is new. This is unprecedented. It's not like it's been before. And this is the opportunity that we all must seize because it's not just an opportunity to explore space as we all have yearned to do all our lives. It's the opportunity to help make a better world uh, here at home and begin the era at last where uh, we refer to humanity's home as worlds, plural, more than one. Um, this whole COVID-19, COVID-19 thing has really brought home, in the most stark terms, that there are ways that our collective world can be improved. We do all this while carrying out all this amazing work, and I really, really believe this to be true. We who explore space have that superpower that we can, at times, um, bring all that human family together. And This time of so much uncertainty and, frankly, division in the country and the world is one of those times. This is an inflection point. One way or the other, the new world, the post-COVID world begins now. And these next giant leaps that we are privileged to help uh, make happen back to the moon and on to other places, these are our chances to help uh, make the new world better than the old one in ways that only we can, we as this big community.